Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. This week, I've got a little bit of breaking news that at first may seem absolutely irrelevant, but, you know, we like to go off on these oddball tangents. Well, I think it's very relevant, but I think it's more relevant the fact that I told you about it. Well, I hadn't noticed that this whole no, fight no, was let's going just on. focus on the fact that I scooped you. You did. Um, Yay. Okay, are you happy? But then again, you do your research 10 minutes before the show when I do my research <laughs> in the entire week leading up to it. And typically by the weekend, I stop doing my research. So, so who has there. more timely information? <laughs> I always have the most timely information. Whatever. Anyway, so uh, we apparently are going to be invited to a retirement party this week. Well, I'm not so much it's a retirement party as an I'm out of here, you morons party. Well, um, also could be a good time. The what what people thought was the all powerful, all knowing um, head of Volkswagen and Volkswagen has, Group, not and, just yeah, brand. the entire Volkswagen Group has quit. Ferdinand Peach. Yeah. Um, now, to to be clear as to how ground shaking this is. He was, I believe, the last remaining member of the extended Porsche uh, Volkswagen family. Well, he actually is a descendant of Ferdinand Porsche. Okay. He was the last one with a leadership role in the company who was left. Wow. Now, some of the things that, that he has done is, is to what – if you're interested in cars at all, the, the the big things that he has done, which people thought in many cases he was nuts about, um, the Audi Quattro. Mm -hmm. Now we think of it as just the all-wheel drive system that's on their car. There was originally a model called the Quattro that dominated the World Rally Championships. That was his baby. Interesting. The um, – not the Torig. Um Give me a second. Oh, the Phaeton. Ah. The Volkswagen Phaeton, which was that luxury sedan. The $100,000 Volkswagen that was a rip-roaring failure? Things. It was a rip-roaring failure in the U.S. Everywhere else in the world, it has done extremely well. Apparently, you can get an old Phaeton for like seven grand. Yeah, I mean, they're worth nothing in the U.S. But overseas, they're worth a, worth a ton of money. The other thing that he is known for, the Bugatti Veyron. That whole project was his. Um, the W12 engine that is in the Bentleys, one of his projects. And another one that they thought he was absolutely crazy to do was something called the Volkswagen Autostat. What is a Volkswagen Autostat? It is actually, if, if you see pictures of um, Wolfsburg, Germany, which is where Volkswagen lives now. Well, they've always been there. Um, that is... The big, huge cylindrical towers, it is the big attraction in town. When it, it It's basically a Volkswagen theme park, for lack of a better term. Okay. Um, if you are a new Volkswagen owner in Europe, you can take delivery of your Volkswagen there. It is stored in these towers, which is apparently this automated parking garage that this robot basically goes up, grabs the car that, that's sitting on like a tray, and lowers it down through the garage to you. Um, if you've seen Top Gear America where they went to Germany, they started at the Autostadt. Okay. Now, they have an attraction there, which is also kind of interesting. The, the name is a little odd. But because you're a 12-year-old boy at heart. I am. It, it, it's called the Ausfahrt Driving Attraction. And what it is, if you're getting, taking delivery of your car, you get the full – briefing of what the car can do and its capabilities and the features and it's the opportunity to go and take the car out and test all these features out there's an off-road track there is a thing where you can test out the parking assist features driving with a trailer all all the various things that you can test out and and do in a car that you might not normally get to do mm -hmm. and if you're just a visitor and you're not taking delivery you can go in and and take part in this too obviously you know not with somebody else's new car <laughs> they've got other cars dedicated to it but people thought he was nuts it's like it was like a 150 million dollar project that they thought he was crazy that nobody was going to want to go and, and take their car get you know have their car delivered to them there that nobody was going to go to it and they do you know something like a couple of hundred deliveries a day Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. That's very impressive. Now, 
Why does this matter to F1? Yeah, the big question is, why does this matter to us? And there's a very big reason. Now, Ferdinand Peach, I will mention, he didn't get along with a whole lot of people. The reason he quit was because there was an ongoing power struggle and argument between him and one of the other high-ups in uh, Volkswagen. And it basically got to be uh, either you follow him or you follow me, and Ferdinand Mm -hmm. picked up his millions and went home. He's had another famous feud. Yes. And this one is so famous, it has literally affected F1 as a whole. See, Ferdinand Peach and Bernie Eccleston, not good friends. And part of the entire Volkswagen group, again, it's not just Volkswagen. This is um, Bugatti. This is Bentley. This was for a while, I believe, Rolls-Royce until they sold it to BMW. Mm -hmm. This was Audi, and this was Porsche. Audi and Porsche, well, Audi, who for years has been dominating the racing scene over on WEC, and Porsche, who jumped in last year and has been doing very well in WEC. But neither one has had a presence in F1. Correct. Now, here's the thing. Um, It's because of this famous feud that's been going on between Peach and Eccleston for years and years that Peach will not have, would never allow a car to enter from one of their brands, from from one of their brands into Formula One. However, he went out of his way to dominate whatever motorsport they could be a part of, which is why they went after World Endurance. They do all of these other motorsport activities. They have a racing history. Yes, and and we've talked a couple of times in the past about how it seems that either Audi or Porsche has been sniffing around Formula One. Audi hired as one of their big wigs for performance and racing in autosport, former Ferrari chairman Luca de Montezemolo. Right. And there's two other F1 um, peeps that are part of Volkswagen Group, one of which is a Ferrari um, simulator specialist mm-hmm. high up in the simulator side. And I forgot the team that the other one worked for. And you know me, the, the names are unpronounceable, <laughs> so we're not even going to go there. However, this opens the door to allow for an Audi or a Porsche or wrap your head around this idea a Veyron. You mean Bugatti? Bugatti. In Formula One, yeah, I don't, I don't see Bugatti jumping in. I think it'd be more that it would be a, it would be Audi or, or Porsche branded. Probably more likely Audi, given their history. Um, but you know, for years it was as long as Bernie's involved, we won't get involved in Formula One. And this past week, over in, before, well, around the entire race weekend, Bernie was a little vocal. He was, and he sat down with Eddie Jordan and had some words. Now, I find, we're going to play the clip of this in just a second, but I find the timing of Peach's departure from uh, Volkswagen and what Bernie had to say last weekend to be very interesting. It is. So let me play that. And the, The interview itself was, there was a lot of interesting stuff there, but it was highly edited. Well, let's presuppose that Renault bought Toro Rosso. And Audi bought um, Red Bull. Yeah. Um, is that okay? Yeah, sure. But Audi say they won't come in if you're there. What's the story behind all that? I've no idea. Nobody's told me that. But if that is the case, I'll leave. So I'd be happy to step down immediately to bring those two people in for sure. But Bernie, you're being serious about that, are you? Because, Absolutely serious. Uh, that's a, a big uh, statement you've just made there. Yeah, but it's true. And that brings me to my big frustration with this interview. What? Because there was a lot of really good information and a lot of really good things that were said in this. Because Bernie will open up to Eddie Jordan more than probably any other journalist out there. And Eddie would get him to this point, and he did this several times, where Bernie would drop some gem like this, and instead of going deeper... 
they'd move on to something else. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why Bernie will interview more with Eddie and give him a little bit more is because he knows he's not going to be pushed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole interview is very highly edited. So quite frankly, Eddie could have given the follow-up question, and then I have a feeling that Bernie reserves the rights to say, nope, you can't air that. He, he may – and, um, Th- that may be a possibility because I think the natural follow-up question to this is, okay, if it's Audi or Porsche or, or somebody like that who comes in and you're willing to step down for it, what about another manufacturer? What if Ford decided to turn around and come back because Ford still has the uh, engine with the most e- – the, the, they're the engine manufacturer with the most ever wins in Formula One. What if they said if you step down, they would come back? or Cosworth, or one of these other teams? I would have loved to have known the answer to that. Are you willing to step down, or is it just specifically for this manufacturer that you're willing to do it for? That's the the follow-up question you'd want? Well, for that one. I would want the, when's your resignation hitting the table? Well, he would say there's no commitment from Volkswagen to, to... send one of the brands over so then you follow up with in the next week if i get both of you to sit down at the same table together this can get worked out there'd have to be a team to buy but yes you you could you could pick at that and you could pull at that you you don't need okay yes you might need a team to quote buy but there's an entry nebulous as it is that uh caterham used to have Mm mm-hmm there's the old HRT entry. It's not like there's not space in the sport. There, there's space, but there's still the application process. There's still foundational work that needs to be done. And in this case, the the theory is that they would buy Red Bull because this is an existing team with an existing infrastructure that, and, and the ability for success right from the beginning where you buy Caterham or the, the ashes limits. of Caterham or, or HRT's entry position. You're starting from scratch. You're building over. I understand so that, but my argument would be my, – my argument is twofold. One, Porsche, Audi already have a racing infrastructure. They, yes, they don't have a Formula One infrastructure, but they have a race infrastructure. So, so does Honda, and look where that's getting them. <laughs> okay. That's before you go digging into them. So does Honda, and that's where that, that gets them. But, okay, rewind. Honda wasn't all that bag of chips the last time they were in Formula but, One. But the last time they were in Formula One, as everyone says, Honda should have dominated if you looked at it by the numbers on paper. You looked at what they did with McLaren. The, the, the last time they partnered with McLaren, they should have dominated when they came in. They they, they took off. They had this extra time when for the return. They should have been more successful. Everybody expected more success out of them. They did not get it. Just cause, And Honda has been extremely strong in the IndyCar series. Mm-hmm. It's an active – just like Audi has been dominating WEC. Just because you dominate one series doesn't mean when you move into another <laughs> series that you're automatically going to go and take over. But well, there's other stuff from that interview. Before we – dig too deep into this hypothetical that really we need to just stay tuned and see where that's going to go. Okay. Um, there were some other comments that were made, and I, and I did not um, record them. Um, there was a little talk about our, one of our favorite teams, Manor Marussia, and what happened in Australia and um, whether they were fined, whether they weren't fined, and how that worked. And Bernie went through the whole thing again. We have heard that they had no intention of racing that they showed up. And Eddie Jordan looked at him and said, do you want them at the races? And, and Bernie's exact words were, not particularly, no. Mm-hmm. And, and he left it right there. Now, okay, why I, did you not go, why? why? <laughs> What's your problem with them? Why do you not want? No, he, he just moved on at that point. That was frustrating. That, I will grant, was the elephant in the room that was ignored but there were other issues and other things that that bernie has been vocal about throughout the weekend and some of it was touched on uh you know the loss of germany he explained a little more about what he tried to do to bring that race around and and i don't believe it was enough still um but that they apparently were willing to accept 50 percent of the price normal and subsidize the rest and that didn't work um during the weekend, he also talked about Monza. 
was going to say, because Monza has got a lot of problems, just like Germany had problems. And Monza's got a unique position in that Monza and Silverstone are the only two tracks that have held a, a F1 event, a Grand Prix, since the 1950s. Yeah. Well, there's there's more to it with Monza than just that. Monza has, is the only one that has done it continuously, with the exception of one year when it was closed for renovations. Silverstone alternated with Donington and a couple of other tracks um, for a few years. But the issue with, first off, Monza's contract ends next year. Right. So we know they're good till 2016. Monza wants a long-term contract. They want at least six to seven years out of Bernie. He's not willing to give it to him, or at least if he is, he's not willing to give it to him on terms that they can afford. The reason that the, – the theory I have is that Bernie now knows that there is some serious value and that Monza really wants him, and Bernie wants to milk him. And the reason why, why Monza wants the race is because in 2022 – or 2023, Monza will celebrate its centenary. They are. They will be the first of the racetracks to be able to celebrate 100 years of racing. They want a Formula One. One, excuse me. They want a Formula One race that year. That's a little hard sentence to say, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> but they want a race that year as part of the celebrations of the centenary of the track. Bernie, knowing this, I believe, wants to milk them. Which I think is the problem I have with Bernie. Mm -hmm. Okay, Bernie, he's an entrepreneur, and I get the idea that you make money when people want you, and I get all of that. And I'm not pro, I'm not anti-capitalism in that. However, I think that Bernie's age, Bernie's burniness, his whatever makes him make short-term decisions without long-term understanding long-term consequences he looks to milk somebody because they want you know they have a special event coming up he's looking to get the most out of it and that's a theory and i'm not saying that that's exactly what he's doing but he looks to milk it he's got contracts with racetracks that are disadvantaged disadvantageous to the racetracks to the point that it's putting them out of business mm-hmm and so he's shrinking the calendar. Well, Nürburgring went belly up for different uh, reasons. Not because of Formula One, but if you can't maintain your contract, you can't bring people to the stands. I mean, Silverstone has had to really and truly dig its heels in deep. And Silverstone mm -hmm. has had to redo the way they approach racing. And they're hamstrung by Formula One contracts and Bernie. And that is, it's, it's short-term profit without long-term gain. And that's what I don't understand. And you know something? That's not the Bernie of old. That's not the Bernie that snapped up the media rights quickly and quietly and did it in such a way that ultimately saved Formula One. And he everybody says that he did that. Well. But he did it with some long-term view. But But the difference, though, is that back then, there wasn't a venture capital firm that had a large chunk of the ownership rights. True. Bernie could do what he wanted, and he had um, Max Mosley over at the FIA to back him up. One of the other things that, that has come out this past weekend, and, and didn't quite realize it, is we heard at the end of the Malaysia race, apparently this announcement was a surprise. Nobody knew it was coming. On the podium at the Malaysia race, the CEO and organizer of the race came out and, and um, mentioned on, at the podium ceremony that the contract had been extended. Mm. Nobody was expecting that to happen. Bernie's own comments that weekend was that he didn't think this was going to happen. A deal was signed. The issue with the Malaysia race is that it ha only two years – um, out of all the years that they've held that race, it only managed to break even two of those years. It operated a loss every other one of those years. And with the declining uh, attendance and the declining revenues and Bernie's additional push for more money out of these um, venues and 
the Malaysian government, nobody thought the Malaysian government would throw any money in because they're still dealing with MH370 and, and the spiraling cost for that. And, and tourism has been beat up because of the issues with Malaysian airlines. Nobody thought the Malaysian government would put any money in. They publicly said they weren't going to fund it. And he came out and said that there was a deal. Now, rumor has it. Now, what's been done is that unlike his normal deals where the cost goes up every year of the contract, it's not. It's hmm. a steady price, but it's more than he would normally ask. Interesting. So. Now, speaking of venues. Other venues, which there's some folks who think that this is a bargaining chip and that he's using this against some of the other European tracks is right now on the calendar still is Baku, Azerbaijan. Um. To yes. be the next European Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Azerbaijan has some concerns with human rights. Yes. Um, but Barney doesn't think so because everybody seems happy there. His exact words. There's also concern. The, the whole idea is I guess this was supposed to run on the waterfront and pass several of the prominent landmarks in the city of Baku. Um However, it sounds like the results that they have come back is one that it would be too short and two would be really boring. Mm. So they're trying to figure that. I guess that was why because the original plan was that it was supposed to run this year and got pushed back. And it may have been pushed back because um, they haven't been able to come up with a suitable circuit design. Because it's going to be a street track. Yes, this will be another street track. Um and there was also a lot of talk as to this past week as to why street tracks are gaining in popularity with F1, at least with F1 management. Because the problem that F1 has when they go to a traditional track is that, a- as we've seen with Monza, we've seen with Spa and a couple of the others, the tracks are being modified to accommodate MotoGP races. Mm-hmm. They're making changes to the runoff areas and stuff like that. I guess MotoGP, there's this impression that they can be a lot more exciting throughout the entire race. They definitely attract lately more people than the Formula One races are. There's a lot more stuff going on. However, you cannot run MotoGP on a street circuit. Period. Ah. The end. So at least that way they can compete with MotoGP and they can keep them out of some of their venues. Oh. That makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, okay, so we've talked about Bernie. We've talked about Peach. We did have a race last weekend. We did. It was our first night race of the season. Yes, in Bahrain. I, you know, I, I got to say, the as, as much as I, I really dig night races and the visual, especially of the tracks kind of like, glowing in the dark when they showed mm-hmm. the overhead shots. I mean, it just looks fantastic. Something about the this generation of cars, the ones that we rolled out in 2014, I don't think they look quite as impressive at night as the previous. Something about the paint designs or whatever. They don't stand out. They don't pop. They don't look nearly as sharp, I think, as what we saw with the pre-2014 cars. Hmm. I don't know what it is. Well, it's certainly not the Sparks because everybody's talking about the Sparks. There is, and and I've learned a little more about the Sparks and A, why they exist and apparently why the drivers happen to dig them. Oh, well, do tell because I will say this. Mm -hmm. Jensen Button, the adorable Jensen Button, tweeted how much he liked watching the Sparks in Bahrain. Oh, he was not the only one. There were a lot of folks, a lot of talk about it. And it was. It was a harken back to earlier designs and, and earlier um, the earlier way that F1 used to run. But back then, they didn't have night races because mm-hmm. that's the other thing that, that makes them stand out. Now, what they've done is um, it used to be a wooden skid plate on the floor uh, or a skid block on the floor of the cars. They've gone and they've swapped them out back to titanium. They used to be a metal plate back in the 90s and generate just as much spark, just as much, if not more sparks than they used to. Drivers, however, used to like them for two reasons. They used to use them as a weapon because 
if you were behind some, a, a car, especially if you were too close to a car and those sparks were flying off, it could pit your helmet and your visor, uh-huh. number one. Number two, it could be distracting. So Emerson Fittipaldi, um, apparently part of his strategy when he was doing the practices and the various outlaps was he would look for the bumpier parts of the track so that when he was in the race and he had somebody coming up behind him, he would make his line grow across those bumpier parts of the track to throw up more sparks. (laughs) So that's why the drivers like it. Yeah. It's a weapon. But apparently there was a bit more to it than just that. Um Yes, we all know about the show, and, and we had to spice up the show and make it look better on, on camera. I, I don't think that's going to make your rating numbers go up. But the other idea was that um, what they did was they replaced the – it was a heavy metal of some sort. Um, or they were with tungsten, and now it's titanium. Um, but rivals suspected in previous years that Red Bull – had a way of running their car lower to the ground than the others for aerodynamic advantage. Mm-hmm. So the theory was that the front part of the floor flexed upwards under load, and the heavy metal skid blocks prevented the wooden underfloor plank, which was there to prevent the car from running too low, from wearing beyond the regulation amount. So that's how they were able to measure, because there was going to be some, there always going to be some scraping. Mm-hmm. But depending on how much scraping there was, was whether or not the car was running too low. Right. So that was the theory. So the FIA suspected that Red Bull was doing this, but they were never able to prove it. Um, And they did a lot to try. Never could pull it off. So they changed the skid blocks to titanium, which is a much softer metal. So that ensures that it's impossible anyway because the the titanium skid blocks are going and wearing down and not the metal floor. And they don't weigh nearly as much Mm -hmm. as the other stuff. So it's preventing the flexing. I knew that the weight change was one of the – one of the advantages. Um, now, of course, being the conspiracy theorist that I am, mm-hmm. is the bearded leader of Red Bull going to come out and complain? Well, he's shaved now. Yes. We, he's we now can't a call him, less bearded. Yeah, we, we can't call Christian Horner the bearded leader anymore. He shaved for Bahrain. Yeah. Barely. It was more of a defuzzing. Okay. <laughs> um, but he... You know, it's going to come out and say, well, because we have the sparks, it's why we're not doing as well? Or would that be admitting that they were taking advantage of the No, he, he won't say anything. You know, a lot of folks have noticed that the car seems to be struggling a lot more than usual. Um, and not all of that is obviously the, uh, the engine. We'll never know. No. They'll, they'll never come out and admit it because you don't want to start an investigation. You don't want to have any of that stuff going. Now, I did mention that Jensen Button – was tweeting during the race. Yeah. The poor Briton didn't race at all in Bahrain. He had 17 laps during free practice and didn't even make it out for a full lap in qualifying before his uh, car broke. Yeah, this is, this is, his weekend was kind of comical. It was. It was, it was like everything that could go wrong did. In fact, his car was on fire at one point as they tried to repair the fire damage. Yeah. They kept finding other problems and more problems and more problems. Now, before we get too far, we just have to mention, because we always start down at the bottom, Madame Marusha, another double finish. Hey, way to go. Now, we just need to convince them. You know, they at least need to do some merchandising. They're not even doing merchandising right now. <laughs> Think of the money you guys could make. There's a lot of folks who are clamoring for your shirts, in large part because they don't have anybody else's sponsors on them. But hey, come on. Um, moving up to uh, McLaren, Fernando in 11th place. Yep. Highest finish for McLaren all year. Still out of the points. They're predicting to be back in the points um, in Barcelona, or at least Fernando is. And they made it out of Q3. Well, you or know, Q1, rather. Sorry. Yes, they did. That was kind of huge and comfortably out of Q1. And we talked about that last week. Right. Um, but. You know, BBC – and I – it's like a pattern with them. They they published this past week the third or fourth article of the season, quoting Eric Boulier saying that, yeah, we're expecting major performance upgrades and improvements come Barcelona. So you know what, guys? You better deliver. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> that's all we've been hearing about for weeks now. Oh, yeah. Barcelona, I think they need to come with a different car. Yeah. Um, 
possibly they could borrow my Tiguan. I mean, I'm sure it'll be better. <laughs> I will say this: um, one of the New Age agencies, and quite frankly, I read them so much I couldn't tell you which one, interviewed Jacques Villeneuve. Yes, and he has declared that he believes Fernando has won his last race. Um, and that the jump to McLaren in particular was the death knell of his entire career. So and, says Jacques. And Jacques is doing what nowadays? Oh, wait, that's right. He's sitting at a desk waiting for the phone to ring when the journalists want to call. For a dialogue quote. I mean, I, I get it. He's older, he's retired, and but still, come on. Well, I mean, he's no David Hobbs. I get that, but. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You know, the the other thing, before, you know, even though we started talking about some race results, the BBC, in addition to talking to Bernie, did – and this, I think, was a big coup for them because, as they mentioned, it's not often that you get two rival drivers from different teams to sit down in, a, in an interview together. And not just to sit down in, in an interview together, but be very candid and very open. Well, I think it it helps that the two particular drivers are candid and open kind of guys. But, you know, we rarely hear from Sebastian Vettel. And yet, Lewis complained that he's a little wordy. Yeah. So, you know, let's jump in. I I love the clip. It's about a seven and a half minute interview. We're not going to play it all. We're going to play bits and pieces of it. But I just, I love the interplay between, and you get a great contrast between their, their personalities. Oh, yeah. So, you know, let's start off with the opening. We'll try and keep it quick. I do long answers. You always do long answers. Dude, you do long, the yeah, longest really answers. Long answers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Dude, when we used always to do a press conference when you used to win, <laughs> be like, oh, we're here for another half an hour. Just, <laughs> it used to be the worst. <laughs> I was falling asleep always. Okay, I'll do very short then. Yes and no. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Have Kimi <laughs> as an inspiration, so I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think he did, but... I found it funny. I mean, he's got a great sense of humor, Seb. He does. And apparently he's a big fan of things like Monty Python and all the English sitcoms and comedy series. Well, you do know that when he first started in Formula One, his girlfriend was English. I think I read that. And that is part of the reason why he became fairly loved. I mean, the English don't hate him. The English um, don't Red Bull. The, the English folks at Red Bull absolutely loved him. They thought he was fantastic. But they've always said that he had a really good sense of humor and a particularly British sense of humor. Yes. And coming from a German, that's high praise. Yeah. You know, and so I find that very interesting. But he does have a good. He he has a a good sense of humor. I did find that Lewis complaining about how long Seb's answers were was funny, considering he talked more. At that point, yeah, he did. <laughs> so back to um, the Seb's self-deprecating sense of humor. We'll, we'll hear a little more of that here. It's just it's so, so dangerous. As I was pulling away, I nearly crashed into. China, what happened when pit lane opened? It looked like you were trying to do a practice start, and then Lewis came past I think, you. Uh, what happened there, man? Yeah. I'll tell you what happened. Um, me being German, disciplined, you know, very... Uh, uh, calculative, that's at least the, you know, the, 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 the stereotype German. I read the notes before going into the race, and it said, do the practice start on the right-hand side after pit exit, where I did my practice oh, really? start. So you, all you guys just stopped way too early. Okay. Plus, I didn't want to queue, so I jumped the queue, <laughs> stopped on the right, but I stopped in the right place. Then I started, you started at the same Did you get penalized? No, because... Uh, you know, if that was me, I would have got penalized. I'm, I'm being a bit of a nerd, but fine. I enjoy it. <laughs> also, it said in the notes that you are allowed to cross the white line. So you, should, cause you could have just gone onto true, the track. True, true, Ease off. <laughs> well, I'm glad to know that Sebastian reads the notes. Apparently, at least somebody reads the notes. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis, probably not so much. Yeah. He's, he's relying on his engineer, apparently, to tell him what to do there. Well, you know, Lewis uh, may not read the notes, but hopefully he'll read the new script because he's just been announced as an uh, actor in the new Zoolander movie. Well, you know, I saw that, <laughs> and all I could think of, especially as I saw the picture, was that, you know, that really explains the screwy hairdos that Lewis has been wearing these last couple of that weeks. That was the first thought I had, <laughs> followed quickly by, well, that was at least one contract he was able to figure out. Ooh. 
Ouch. So I guess you want to move on to the next round of clips then, huh? Sure. All right. Before you guys go, just a few quick fire questions. Most expensive thing you've ever bought? A house. <laughs> I guess. Lewis is sounding nervous. <laughs> a plane. <laughs> um, how do you like relax away from racing? To spend time with the family, especially now with, with my kid. It's all changed for me, yeah. Partying and no one getting there. Most influential person you've ever met? It's kind of difficult. It's two for me. That's the Queen and Mandela. They're kind of king and queen for me. That's a hard act to follow. Uh, well, I would say my parents. I think they had most influence in my life. So uh, other than that, I mean, in terms of, uh, yeah, popular people and stuff. I mean, That's what you're referring to? Like, yeah, yeah, no, it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's so the people who we met. Um, That's okay. Different. Actually, my family also most influential people <laughs> yeah. in my life. But I mean, this is already getting too competitive. I can't um, compete. Can you name Lewis's dogs? Roscoe, uh, because I met him, and he's a nice dog. He's a lovely Very dog. Very funny. Oh, yeah, he gave him a present. He gave him a present. Yeah, 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 he gave me this damn <laughs> ball for this thing, and it squeaked so much, and he wouldn't leave alone all night. So he's in the motorhome next door. I won the next Tactics. day. And Tactical. this thing's going up the whole night. I think I won the next day, though. Huh? I won the next day. It's probably because it, yeah, it, it, it was definitely tactics, man. Yeah. So there's so much in this. First and foremost, the jealousy is that what the one usmanship about yes. over the influential person i mean i love that lewis led with mandela and the queen that's awesome but seb i mean completely Goes to deep. take a tactic that they used in the race the undercut he yeah. undercut him and knocked his knees out from underneath him i mean seriously i would want to be seb's mom much more than i'd want to be lewis's mom right now <laughs> okay but here's the thing Seb gave the stereotypical who's more important in your life answer that you go and, and you create the mush with. And Lewis, he interpreted it just like Lee McKenzie wanted him to interpret it. Right. You know, who's the most famous person you've ever met versus the person who had the most influence in your life? But I think, yeah. that's a, I think that's a function of exactly what Seb said earlier. He is German and – Lewis is British, and I think that's a, it's a cultural change too. Well, that's some of it, and it, it, it's also the fact that it, when you really get down to it, Seb is much more reserved. He's not as flashy as Lewis is. Mm -mm. He's not as out there. He Seb does not live the rock star lifestyle where well, Lewis thrives that. on it. You could hear that in the most expensive thing they've ever bought. Absolutely. Seb bought a house. Mm -hmm. We all eventually go to buying homes. I mean, that's something I can relate to. It's the most expensive purchase in our lives. Mm -hmm. But Lewis bought a plane. I will never own a plane. The, the one thing I, I really liked about this interview, though, is it is personality that you don't yeah. get. Oh, yeah. It definitely is. Now, can you explain something to me? Okay. This is about the third interview I've heard this year where somebody gets asked if they can name Lewis's dogs. <laughs> Why does no one ever remember Coco? You know, they didn't even give him a chance to mention it because I... Lewis jumped in about the ball. But Roscoe's the one that is always in the pictures. That's the one that Roscoe mentions the most. That Roscoe mentions the most. Or, Roscoe or the, mentions yes. himself all the well, time. Well, see, that's the issue there. Coco hangs out in the background, but Lewis, Lewis is always mentioning Roscoe. Roscoe was the first one. Oh, so you always love your firstborn much okay. more. Apparently. So so let's wrap this up to see where this goes. Okay. Uh, can you name one of Sebastian's cars? He likes his name. He's Formula One cars. Oh, no. I he don't gives know. them the names of girls. How many cars have you got now? Because you've got some of your cars, haven't you? Well, it's the... No, but you've got some ah, at home. You have a championship winning car. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very sick. Lucky. That's what. See, that's why my contract's taking so long. <laughs> trying to get that insane. Uh, who's going to win this season's championship? One of us. Hopefully. One Will of you us. ever be sitting here doing this discussion with me again, in wearing the opposite shirts? You and Ferrari. You which and Mercedes. Discussion, which discussion? Well, well question, would, would you like? The question is, will we ever be wearing the same shirts? Will you ever be wearing the same shirts? Mm. Well, I have a contract. He doesn't. <laughs> so. You put yourself a bit no, in the corner Not anytime soon. Not anytime soon. Do you have something to say to Nikki and Toto now? No, or? no, no. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much for your time. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks very much. Yeah, that's going to spot room, isn't it? <laughs> and now we have can add one more thing to Lewis Hamilton's uh, CV. He is now prophetic. Because for the rest of the week, we have heard nothing but rumors of Hamilton going to Ferrari. And, you know, just to further feed to it, Ferrari has come out and said that they are stalling on Kimmy's contract negotiations. Now, they say it's to keep Kimmy motivated, which I can understand. Yeah. Kimmy can be that way. But they have publicly said that they're stalling on his contract negotiations. Oh, it gets better. Uh, Maurizio of Riva Bene mm-hmm. has been interviewed regarding this rumor that Lewis is stalling with Mercedes pending going to Ferrari. And Maurizio says, is he calling you? Because he's not calling us. <laughs> <laughs> now, the I, the reality is, and, and truth, serious truth, he would be crazy to leave Mercedes where it is. You don't leave the best car on the track. That's where he is. He's the number one driver and the best in the best car. And Ferrari, yes, everybody, and even Maurizio says, every one of the drivers on the track have dreamed about wearing red their whole lives. And there's no doubt about that. But would Lewis risk being the number two driver in Ferrari instead of being the number one driver at Mercedes? Well, it depends on whether or not he wants a fourth world championship. Because... Not only does he run the risk of being a number two driver at Ferrari, he's now head-to-head against a four-time world championship winner, and he's a three-time winner. Now, granted, now he could turn around and say, we've got a fair comparison between me and Seb to see who's the better driver because we're in equal vehicles. I don't know. I, I You know, we should have been playing a silly season music because it's already started. Well, it has started. Um, Now, speaking of him going towards his third title, Mm -hmm. now his third title will be, you know, one of the big deals uh, because it will tie him with Jackie Stewart. Yes. Jackie did the post-race interview up on the podium this past week. He did. In in Bahrain. Wow, those were... um, I know this is his signature style, (laughs) but... Seriously, he looked like he just walked out of the 70s with those black <laughs> pants. Whoa. It's so very Jackie. Yeah. Now, traditionally, Jackie Stewart and Hamilton haven't always had very nice things to say about each other. Just FYI. I don't know if you knew that they weren't the best of acquaintances. Um, Jackie apparently pulled Lewis aside and told Lewis that he was on track to get his third world championship mm-hmm. and was it was champion to champion conversation yeah. and not being patronizing at all and told Hamilton and I found this very interesting told Hamilton and I'm okay with it well that's good and Jackie has come out and said that Lewis has shown some real maturity in these last few years and that he's becoming much more a Lewis fan than he ever was before. And I think I think growth and maturity has really sparked in Jackie's view of the, the young Brit. Yeah, probably. But I thought that was a very interesting thing that Jackie was – because Jackie holds one of the top records in England. So one more last bit of lewis news before we move on and lewis by the way he won the race no contest um mercedes has been putting out some pictures and some video and i'm hoping we will get a more extended version of it soon apparently this past week sir sterling moss and lewis were taking 1950 well sterling moss era mercedes race cars around monza and not just around the track, they were up on the original banking. Oh, that sounds so cool. Yes. Sterling's car is gorgeous, by the way. We shared a picture or two of it uh, over on the Facebook page. Check it out. It is just that classical, swoopy, smooth, silver arrow race car. It is gorgeous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so moving beyond that. Wait a minute. I have okay. a couple of more things to tell you. Lewis has entered, I think I've got this t- this stat right, which I find very fascinating. 
one of six race drivers to have led for more than 2,000 laps. Yeah, I heard he had, he had broken some record along with um, Max Verstappen, who, by the way, was the <laughs> youngest driver to not finish in Bahrain <laughs> in, a, in an F1 race. Well, he was the youngest driver to start in an F1 race and then not finish. Yes. Okay, so... So Max has got two DNFs to his name this far this season. Which, um, not only that, but Bahrain is one of the few tracks that Toro Rosso has never scored a point. Wow. Yeah. Um, Some of the other stuff that happened in the back, on one hand, as usual, Pastor Maldonado, brilliant to ridiculous to brilliant to ridiculous, Started the race ridiculous. I don't know if you caught that. They didn't talk too much about it. Pastor got hit with a penalty because he was out of position at the start of the race. Yeah, I knew that. Now, there were some oddball gaps that happened because um, Massa, they couldn't get his car started. Mm -hmm. So he started from the pit lane. Um, Well, apparently, he ended up, he should have started in 16th. Maldonado should have started in 16th. Yeah, pa- Pastor should have started in 16th, so you think that maybe he would have crept up into, oh, I don't know, 15th or 14th or something like that. No, for some reason, he lined himself up in the spot for 18th. <laughs> so he was out of position backwards? Uh-huh. If you're going to screw up your race by being in a wrong, at least be further up. Oh, my word. And, you know, you got to question the stewards. He gave himself his own starting penalty. Well, not, not, not only did he give himself his own starting penalty, he then spent the next lap, well, the, the first lap going wide through, like, the first three corners because he couldn't get his tires up to to temperature. So he was all over the place on top of that. But remember... In his flash of brilliance, we, we, we also have to acknowledge the flat. Now that we've talked about the ridiculous, the, the flash of brilliance. We were, here we are at race number four, and for the first time this season, Pastor has finished a race. Woohoo! And I checked, <laughs> still no crashes. None that I. I I'm None trying of their f- his fault. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out is it's a crash that wasn't his fault that took him out of the race because he was involved in some crashes, but the crashes weren't what took him out. Right. But, yeah. So that's that. Do you have the quote that he said? Uh, about why he, he Why he is so, so crashy? What Pastor has told um, the Telegraph is that, well, to find the limit, you need to cross the limit. Very deep here. And he goes on to say, I think I have the big balls to cross the limit Every time, when pa- and these are his words, not my words. Here, I gotta get this quote because apparently Pastor talks about himself in the third person. I did not know this, but he also told the Telegraph that when Pastor crashes, it's big news. When the other people crash, there is no news. It couldn't possibly be because Pastor always crashes. <laughs> I saw him listed as the crashinator. There's the crashinator, there's crashter, um, there's the talk that if you get hit, you've been pasteurized. <laughs> oh! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's always a good day when we can talk about Pastor Maldonado's balls, but <laughs> I am impressed that he finished. Now... What I'm not very impressed by. Where Seb ended up? Well, yeah. Um, I got, well, I've got two things about that. I'm okay with Ferraris being behind, and where Seb was, that's even finer to me. Um, but Williams is really disappointing me this year. Yeah, although Valtteri did really well. Valtteri did do well, and he did say that this was the first race he didn't hurt. So I've been wondering if his, you know, he's been racing with one arm strapped behind his back. Yeah, they mentioned that to an interview with Claire, 
that he's, he's come out and said this is the first race since Melbourne that he hasn't been in pain. And um, Claire wasn't really happy with that. Apparently he hadn't told the team that he was still in pain. Yeah, they were a little bothered by it. Um, but dicing it up between everybody was Kimmy. Yes. Put himself in second place. And we got to mention this because I think this is a term and a phrase we're going to hear quite a bit. So I want to get it out there. Kimmy, part of the reason that Kimmy got to where he was and Seb was trying it was they used a strategy that's known as an undercut. Okay, explain this to me because I've listened to Cothard explain it a couple of times. And between Cothard's explanation and his Scots, um, I don't think I fully understand it. Okay. Well, what the undercut is, is it's making a pit stop before arrival and gaining time through the extra grip from the fresh tires. So it's the idea of your rival is on older tires. They can't quite push as hard. There's not as much life in them. So you go dive in, make a pit stop, come out on fresh tires that you can push really hard on and build up a time advantage, build up that gap before they come in and put on their own tires and if you're good and you can build that gap up enough when your rival goes and and puts on the fresh tires he can't make that up well and but there's two parts of that that are key to me and one's one that i don't fully understand Mm -hmm. and the other is on the defense of it so the part that i don't fully understand is okay you go in first you get fresh tires you go speeding off does that not balance out when the next when that person that you're trying to beat then goes in now they're on fresh tires that they can push harder and i get you've had some serious some amount of time to push to open up the gap but now you're defending on older tires or you possibly run the risk of running a long stint on tires it's more that you run the possibility of running that long stint on older tires because keep in mind if you're pulling the undercut and and you time it right your tires aren't while they won't be as fresh as your rivals when your rival comes out they're not going to be blown either so they're still going to be better than the older tires your rival was running on when you dove into the pits in the first place. The first time that Ferrari made an impact with it, though, normally Mercedes, and and for most teams, the strategy is the guy that you have up front is the one you pit first. They dominate your tire strategy. They dictate it. But because of the undercut and the threat that that posed to Nico. After Ferrari, and I believe it was uh, Seb who, who was the first one to dive into the pits there. After Seb went into the pits to get his fresh tires to defend against the undercut, they brought Nico in instead of bringing Lewis in. Mm-hmm. Now, that was my other question about the defense against the undercut. Mm-hmm. All right, so you're on lap 15, and the guy right behind you that you've been fighting with for a while mm-hmm. dives into the pits and gets tires. Mm-hmm. Is the best strategy to defend it to right at that next lap that you hit the pits again? Because, I mean, he's dived in after you can get there. You come back around. You dive in that lap right after. That gives them the least amount of time to build up any space. Does that make sense? It does, and I don't have a good explanation for that. But what I can do is is instead... Now take a look at what happened with Seb and Valtteri. Okay. And even better, last year where that everybody kept talking about and how they didn't understand that Lewis on the older tires was holding off Nico. Mm-hmm. Is that if you've got enough pace in your older tires, and it, some tracks are harder to pass on than others, like apparently Bahrain, Monaco's another one, there's a couple of others, you keep your opponent who's behind you in the dirtier air. Well, I know. And that in, that has an impact on the aerodynamic efficiency. That chews up their tires even more and makes it even harder for them to pass you. Well, this is this is um, <coughs> driving days from our, our mini youth um, 101. The car behind that's playing catch-up is working harder than the car in front that's setting the pace. Yes. 
And so we know that the car behind is always going to wear their tires faster. We watched it happen time and time again with Nico and, and Lewis. We watched Lewis chew tires when he had to play catch up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just that Lewis was always better on his tires. If he was chasing somebody down, you're chewing, you're going to be chewing yep. your tires. Um, and that I can completely understand. So that's why I was I was wondering if the best defense to the undercut is when you see that because you don't necessarily know that somebody you know they're not going they're going to want to give as little heads up that they're about to bring somebody in as possible. Sure. So they want that front car to be past the pits to before they mm-hmm. pop that person over. You don't necessarily know, but if you can only put one lap between you and that fresh set of tires, they're not gaining ten seconds on a lap. You're so. N- you're not, but if it's a pass that, or if it's a track that is difficult to pass at, you know it, it changes everything. And also, you're not just looking at it as just those two cars. Right, you've got all okay. the other ones on. The yeah, because okay, the the car in front that that's just had the undercut done. If they go in and pit based on the other cars on the track and the amount of time it takes to be in pit lane that could then drop them into traffic that they now have to contend with on top of trying to catch up to you. And that can also cause issues. And I know watching what the traffic would be on the exit of pit lane is all is, is just as much a part of the strategy as times and everything and lap times and things like that. And there was a lot of interesting exits this race. Uh, yeah, <laughs> including like three cars trying to go down the lane at one time. And it was completely clean it was and no penalties and I, were assigned and pastor was in the middle of that and pa- no penalties were assigned yeah um speaking of passing really quick mm-hmm. i have to give a nod to nico rosper that boy he woke up he woke up now i understand that in preparation for this race he watched lewis's race against him last year where we had some great wheel-to-wheel action mm-hmm but he watched what Lewis did on some of the corners that Nico failed in. Mm-hmm. And he pulled almost an identical pass to what Lewis did the year before to get around Vettel, I believe. No. Well, oh, Nico pulled it on Vettel, yes. Nico pulled it on Vettel this year, and it was gloriously beautiful. Yes. Yeah, just slamming the door on him and oh. brushing him back. It was, you know, as a matter of fact, I have David David Cothard's comment when that pass happened last year. We go on to the final lap, and Rosberg's going to try and get past his teammate. Down into turn two, round the outside. This is where we saw Ricardo, but no, Hamilton squeezes him out. He says, you're not coming through on this last lap. A little racing driver slapped to the face there from Hamilton once again on Rosberg. Okay, so that was the whole... That was a great The, the whole pass. talk there. That, that was a great moment, and that's... Everyone was, was hoping that... Uh, well, I don't know about hoping, but a lot of the media was talking that, you know, maybe we could see the same. Th- I didn't think we were going to see anything quite as dramatic as Bahrain last year, but it was a good race. There was a lot of action. There was a lot of stuff going on. Now, the the clip that you pulled was Lewis denying Nico the pass, which was towards the end of the race. Yes. The pass I'm actually talking about that Nico obviously learned what Lewis did. Yes. Was, Nico had pole position in that race last year right and lewis slid past him it was the same corner it's exactly the same corner but he slid past him and it was that beautiful nico took a different line and lewis took a tighter inside line and slid past and nico you could probably and i wish somebody would do this took the footage from last year's race and lay it up against what nico did in this year's race to get around vettel and you would see that nico became lewis yeah. On that one turn. You know, I think there was some of that, and there was some of also the realization in China that if he had done that once or twice in China, he would have been better off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, every article I'm reading about Nico's race and his bid for the championship this year. He's done. He's done. But everything I'm reading says Nico needs to wake up. Mm-hmm. Now, he's only 27 points behind. It's not – this is not a lock by any stretch of the imagination. We've watched things – this time yeah. last year, Nico was ahead in the points. 
But the the difference, though, between this year and last year is um, f- the reliability issues that kept putting Nico on a, ahead and kept keeping Nico neck and neck and keeping the two of them neck and neck have not happened. Well, I understand that. And, I mean, there were a lot of things that happened to Lewis that kept him on the back foot. Yeah. Um, but... I just I want to not fall to that same media trap of we are four races in and Lewis is ahead, so obviously he's going to win. There's no obviously an F1. No, there's definitely not. Um, and it's not a given that there's a very big history of folks who have not been able to get their third title in Formula One for a wide variety of reasons. But the the big difference when it comes to Nico and challenging for it is that the psychological issues that Lewis was running into being Lewis, he does not seem to have. He This is a, this very is a grounded Lewis. A very different Lewis than we've seen in the past. And now all of a sudden we're seeing Ferrari nipping at Nico's heels. And if Nico's not careful, points that he needs, that he should have gotten, are going to go to somebody at Ferrari. And that's going to make it that much harder, regardless of what Lewis does at that point. Nico needs every point he can get his hands on. And every time that a Ferrari is in second and he's not, those are points that he doesn't have. Oh, you're completely right. You're very much right. Not to mention just what we talked about with the undercut Mm -hmm. concept. When you're fighting with another car, you're not setting the pace. You're not... You're not driving at your best. You're having to react. Lewis, by being able to put himself out front, and this is, I I don't compliment Seb very often, but what Seb (laughs) did when he was at Red Bull with getting out front and staying out front, he set his own race. He could drive, he could drive his race. Mm -hmm. He wasn't fighting anybody for that. And Lewis has been able to do that masterfully this year. And... Nico is now fighting, and he's fighting with a Ferrari, and he's not fighting with his teammate right now because he's busy fighting with Ferrari. Yeah. And I think that he honestly went into the season thinking it was going to be a Lewis-Nico battle. Everybody did. I think because they discounted what Ferrari was doing, he wasn't prepared for having a different fight. And I don't think he's downshifted yet. Well— Watching what was going on in winter testing, nobody thought Ferrari had the pace that they have, including but, possibly Ferrari. But testing can be a lie. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all part of the strategy. Absolutely. And, you know, the, somebody famously said, you don't know anything about these cars until you see them on the track at the first race, and then you still don't know anything about these cars. Yeah. And... That's the reality. It, it, every week, they're, they're a prototype. Every week, they are completely different than they were the week before. And what you thought you knew, you don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have anything else to talk about? No, I think that's it. I was getting ready to wrap. Oh, okay. I want to give props to Masa, by the way, before I, while I'm still giving props to people. Absolutely. Masa started in the pits. He started. He had damage. He fought. I mean, that boy thought it it was a a compromised race right from the beginning um but for him to end up in the points was a huge accomplishment there. Uh, one point means a lot especially at this stage of the the championship one point means a lot but to have started so far back to fight the fight that he fought to get through the field i masa continues to impress me as a great race car driver and well when he when he's on, he's not always on. Well, uh, the, the but, last, yeah. The last thing that we'll mention before we go, um, it appears that Red Bull is already on four power units. Yeah. I think now, they, the fifth unit has been approved, so that will be happening. They've got one more, and then we start seeing penalties. Yeah. Talk about a disaster. Four units, four races. Yeah. That's not a good ratio. It was, however, a very spectacular um, ending for Daniel Ricardo's engine this time. Well, you know, I did read that obviously since Bahrain sent up all the fireworks as Lewis crossed the line, Ricardo wanted to join in. That, that was Christian Horner's comments is obviously his engine wanted to join in. And um, 
massively exploded as Ricardo came across the line. And, but he finished. Yes. So uh, on that explosive note, we will remind you that uh, we are up on Stitcher. We are up on iTunes. We are not on Spotify. No, we're not. We're, we, we've got that down now. But we want to hear from you. We know you're listening. We know you're out there. Like us over on Facebook, over at uh, the Bloke and the Bird uh, show. Um, the link is, is around. I don't know it off the top of my head. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but like us, comment. Maybe you should point out that you have been able to figure out what the note is. And uh, remember, you can always find us over at www.theblokeandabird.com. And uh, with that, I think we will call it a show. 